0: All right. Good times. Good morning. Um, My name is Simon. I'm the pastor at Grace City in Portland, one of a handful of leaders. We're here to serve you guys. Um, If you're first time at Grace City in Portland, if you're new or new-ish, special welcome to you. I I hope, I believe we all hope that, that this is the kind of church where anyone might experience truth. Uh, grace, and ultimately new life in Jesus Christ. And I always like to emphasize the word anyone. Um, I, think, I think truth and grace is, is hopefully almost a given. We, we are going to study God's word, and, and we are expecting him to meet with us and, and to uh, give us his grace to, to experience new life. But we emphasize anyone because I realize in a town like Portland, on a morning like this morning, God only knows where, where we're all coming from. I know some of you in here have been following Jesus for a while and, and you love the Lord and you're, you're so passionate about, about growing in your relationship with him and learning what it looks like to trust him and obey him in new ways. I realize that some of you in here, in all likelihood, wouldn't even necessarily consider yourself a Christian. You're here because someone invited you or maybe you're, you're, you, you invited yourself because you're open, you're curious, you're looking for answers. I hope that you find what you're looking for and then some this morning. The scriptures say something along the lines of God. He, he likes to answer our prayers beyond what we can even think to ask for. He likes to exceed our expectations because that is, that is just the nature of who he is. He's a good, generous, faithful, awesome God. Um, he tells us to call him Father. So. Like a good father, he loves to bless his kids. Anyways, I hope that encourages you. I hope that means something to you. Let's go ahead and turn to God's word this morning. If you have a Bible, um, you can grab it, open it, turn it on, or feel free to grab a NIV paperback out of one of the boxes in either one of the two center aisles. We're going to jump back into the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the New Testament. It's, uh, It's this sort of eclectic, genre of a book. It's, it's, a, it's a letter. It's a prophetic text. It, it employs the apocalyptic genre, which is a very specific ancient kind of writing genre full of Im- imagery and symbolism. It's almost like reading a really, really cool ancient graphic novel. It's full of all sorts of different color and, and interesting things to work through. Um, so that's what we're doing. And Today we are, I believe, on letter four, letter four or five. Someone help me. Where are we at? Letter five. So we're we're in Revelation chapter two, working through the seven letters to the seven churches. Four. We're on four. The seven churches that are located in the ancient Roman province of Asia, uh, Asia Minor, or modern-day Western Turkey, and. Um, This morning, we're going to read a letter that Jesus himself wrote to the church that is in the city called Thyatira. So here we go. Reading the church's mail. What's this? So this would be Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you: that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent she refuses she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality behold i will throw her onto a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her i will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and i will strike her children dead The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule or shepherd them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yours truly, Jesus Kind of keeps getting more and more intense. Um, let me emphasize. Let me just remind us all that we are dealing with a very particular genre. I know some of those words are like they're 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 a bit of a shock. It's like oh my goodness, like what is what does this even mean? What is he saying? Now I don't want to I don't want to skirt around the, the words of Scripture. I don't don't want to do what so many of us, I believe, are very tempted to do. Oftentimes, when we're wrestling with like difficult things in the Bible, and that is to let's see if we can't sort of figure out a way to just work around the hard bits, and we'll call it allegorical, or we'll call it just anything other than what it obviously is. As tempting as that is, sometimes like let's let's just not do that. Let's let's wrestle with this head on, but let's do it thoughtfully. Let's do it um, as we consider, again, the genre. Like what, is, what type of writing is this? Where is it appropriate to interpret some of the words and the imagery in a way that is spiritual or symbolic? And where is it not? You guys with me? Okay. Um, so, there's a lot of directions we could go. I mean, to be honest with you, we, we could like spend a few hours, I think, just addressing every single little detail, and I mean, a lot comes up, um, and as I've prayed this week and, and really wrestled through some of this stuff, and thinking about us, what does God want to say to us, and, and how is he speaking to his people in Portland, here at Grace City, today through this letter, um, this is what I've come up with, but first of all, and this is the case for all of the letters so far Jesus has some really positive things to say to his people his church in Thyatira he he commends them he acknowledges the fact that they're they're doing well they're they're loving well they're remaining faithful they're enduring they're being patient they're they're really holding up and and i don't ever want to just skip over that part and go right into the bit to to the butt he says well done um, given the fact that you're living in this ancient empire that is radically anti Christ or anti Christian, you're, you're bearing up. You're remaining faithful. Well done. But, but, I do have this against you. There's some of those, and he's talking to the church, he's, talk, he's talking to some of them, his family. Some of you tolerate the woman Jezebel and her teachings. Jezebel. I said during week one that as we're working our way through Revelation, we are going to consistently, frequently come across words that are a bit like if you're reading through Wikipedia and like every other word is a hyperlink, and you could go here, you could go there, and and this is definitely one of those words. Who on earth is Jezebel? And are we meant to understand the the? The metaphor here, if there is a metaphor, if I was a first century Christian, Jesus follower living in Thyatira, having this letter read out loud to me on the Lord's day, and that was the correction that featured in this letter, some of you tolerate this woman Jezebel, where would my mind immediately go if I was actually, I don't know, if I knew anything about uh, my Bible? And I think that's what we should be thinking to ourselves. Now Jezebel, who on earth is Jezebel? Is that a real person? Is that meant to be some sort of a metaphor? Is it like a hyperlink that's meant to sort of import this whole narrative, this whole background that says something about not just an individual, although she may have been uh, an individual, an actual person, a woman perhaps in this church. But what's going on here? Who is this Jezebel it says in verse twenty. To read it again, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, what is that? Sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. We all, I think, know what sexual immorality is, or might be from a biblical standpoint but what about food sacrifice to idols what is that all about do we have any sort of context for that in our contemporary lives any ideas of food sacrifice to idols what, what could that be to be honest with you I, don't, I, I can't think of a parallel I mean it, I will tell you this though biblically is it rhetorical are we supposed to answer um, you could have Biblically, food sacrifice to idols has everything to do with idol worship. So in the ancient world, when people wanted to to merit favor from the local god or goddess, they would go to a temple and there would be certain rituals involved. Um, There was always some kind of payment. And oftentimes, typically, the rituals incorporated something to do with sexuality so temple prostitutes was a very common thing. Male and female pr- temple ritual prostitution would, be, would have been a common aspect of ancient worship. And there would have been a meal, some kind of a feast. Sometimes it involved eating raw meat, a lot of blood, blood involved. At the very least, you would have paid some money and then you would have left with some food or you would have shared a meal. It would have actually been a, an immediate sort of um, benefit from having gone and participated in the worship of some deity. So sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols is really explicitly a reference to worship. So the correction is some of you are tolerating this woman Jezebel, this prophetess who is teaching and seducing my people to worship other gods. Now, I think it would be a mistake... So from this point, preach you know the next forty minutes on the importance of like sexual morality. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I think it needs to be talked about, and I said some words about it last week, I, I believe. Guys, um, when it comes to sex, I'll say two things. The Bible is radically pro-sex. It's like where the whole story begins practically. God creates this beautiful earth that we live in, and He creates a man, He creates a woman, He brings them together, and He says, I want you to become one, which will be a picture of what I'm like. And then I want you to fill the earth. I want you to I want you to have babies. I want you to become a family. And this is all meant to be an act of worship, an expression of who you are, how I've made you, the fact that you are my image bearers, creatures made in my image. It's amazing. It's a beautiful vision. God has an incredible vision for our bodies and human sexuality. Now, ironically, the enemy of our souls, Satan, the serpent, whatever you want to call him, it, whatever, he realizes this. And he seems to be working relentlessly to pervert Our view of sexuality, this incredible gift from God given to us as a means of worshiping, glorifying, honoring, reflecting what God is like himself. So it's a gift. I said I was going to say two things. It's a gift. It's good. The Bible is radically, totally pro-sex. But number two, it is so powerful that God explicitly instructs us in how we're to actually enjoy it and use it. And it's called marriage. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the story. He said, I created male and female and the two shall come together and become one flesh. This is God's vision and this is God's instruction for how we as the creature are meant to enjoy the gift. And so when it comes to topics of sexual immorality in the Bible, it's kind of one of those like, duh, topics. Like this is just, I mean, people debate about it all the time and people skirt around like what the Bible actually says. But guys, really, it's just like, it's, it's, it's duh. This is, the Bible has all sorts of things to say about how we enjoy our bodies and sex. Um, But it's not really complicated. There's not really a whole lot more to say about it than that. Maybe that's a bit of an overstatement. But he's not talking about sexual immorality per se. He's talking about worshiping some other God, quote-unquote God, besides Jesus. And so, somehow that has something to do with Jezebel. Who's Jezebel? Okay, let's go there. Who is Jezebel? Jezebel only shows up a couple times in all scripture. Once, we've just read. Before that, we've got to go all the way back about a thousand years. We're talking 9th century BC, 1 Kings chapter 16. Israel was divided into a southern and northern kingdoms. Asa was king of the southern kingdom, otherwise known as Judah, And Ahab was the king of Israel, a.k.a. Samaria, which was the northern half of the kingdom. They were divided, they were split. It says in 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 30, that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It's impressive. And if that wasn't bad enough, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So he married the princess of the king of the Sidonians. And because of that, I guess you could say, he started worshipping another god. He, he basically, the Bible describes it as adultery. He was meant to be faithful to God Yahweh, as he's known in in the Old Testament scriptures. But he decided to begin looking to another god. uh, The uh, the god of of that region, the the ancient Canaanite god, otherwise known as Baal. Perhaps you've you've heard it referred to as Baal. Uh, It says that he erected an altar in the house that he built for Baal in Samaria. And he also made an Asherah. Now, Asherah is another god. Some scholars argue that Asherah would have been one of Baal's consorts, sort of like a a deity wife, as it were. Um, There's a lot of debate and speculation about all of that, who, who was Baal, who was Asherah. But one thing that we do know is that All throughout the region, archaeologists have dug up what are referred to Asherah poles. They could have been trees. They could have been carved poles to look like trees. But they were used to worship this other goddess, a.k.a. Asherah. Um, As I said, much speculation, debate about all the details. But for sure, Baal and Asherah were, number one, ancient Canaanite deities, as I said. Number two, the god and goddess of rain and fertility and love and war, respectively. That's kind of important to the story. Rain and fertility, love and war. And then number three, their worship practices included ritual prostitution, male and female, and child sacrifice. That's how these gods rolled. Um, In fact, if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 16, the very next thing that's highlighted after the bit about Ahab marrying Jezebel is that so-and-so went on to sacrifice their eldest and youngest son for the sake of this new city that they were going to found. So child sacrifice. It says something about these quote-unquote gods um, that Ahab and Jezebel were involved with. Jezebel... Ahab's wife was the self-appointed priestess of Baal and Asherah. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, a little bit later on, it says Jezebel had all the prophets of Yahweh, that is the God of Israel, executed. And in their place, she ordained 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, who all ate at Jezebel's table. In other words, she foot the bill for these temples, these priests and priestesses who all facilitated the worship of these other gods. Now you, I know what you're thinking like, "Okay, seriously, like I know these things like existed in the ancient world. Please can we get to the point? Like what, is, what does any of this have to do with with like my life? I've got work tomorrow morning. Like tell me something helpful." We're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> Background. Um Okay, so you, you get, get the picture. This is who Jezebel She was an actual historic person who lived about 1,000 years ago. And by, and by the way, side note, think about the ancient Christians. I'm talking the, the first century Jesus followers in Thyatira. They're having this letter read to them, and they come across this hyperlink, Jezebel, and immediately they're thinking, Jezebel, we know Jezebel. We know the story of the woman who married Ahab and how together they led God's people into this sort of an adulterous affair with another God and how it went extremely bad for them. But that was a thousand years ago. And yet, I said this last week, I would argue that the ancients, they understood something about the spiritual nature of reality that I think we have largely forgotten. See, it's, it's easy. Here, here's my side point. We're reading this letter written to Thyatira, and it was written like 2,000 years ago, right? But the Thyatirans in the first century are having a letter read to them that makes a reference to a person who lived 1,000 years ago. But arguably... It was still absolutely relevant to their contemporary situation. And I, I just say that to encourage us, we mustn't make the mistake of thinking, oh, these are the ancients. They just worship weird and everything was superstitious and just and but we're obviously modern now, and so none of this is really relevant to us. And I would say, guys, I think the ancients understood a lot that we can learn from. Now to be sure, thank the Lord for science. Thank the Lord for medicine. Thank the Lord I don't live in the first century. Because I probably wouldn't be alive right now. I would have died of diarrhea or something. I'm sorry, it just came out. That's, that's the thing. I hear, I hear it happened a lot. Thank the Lord that we live in the 21st century. But God, help us to learn from the ancients. Now, that's Jezebel. Enter Elijah. If we keep reading the story, this is what happens. I'm talking 1 Kings chapter 17. This is the next chapter. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab... As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. What kind of God was Baal? He was the deity of rain and fertility. As soon as Ahab and Jezebel decide, forget Yahweh, not working out, let's try out Baal, because he is the God of rain and fertility which is, I mean, this is like live or die in the ancient world. Let's worship him. The prophet, Elijah, gets word, and he says, oh, really, really? You think Baal of Asherah can do better than Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who rescues, the God who provides in the desert, the God who created everything? He doesn't compete with other gods. He is actually God. You think okay tell you what you will not see a drop of rain or even dew on the ground until i say so by the word of the lord we'll see what happens so he kind of tells you something about how elijah rolls i like elijah that's a bold move that's a bold move I'd have been like, come on, God, don't embarrass me. I'm trying to just, come on. 1 Kings 18, moving on. Three years go by. Then the Lord tells Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab. It's time to confront the so-called prophets of Baal. Guys, this is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible First Kings eighteen verse twenty. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, "How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him." And the people did not answer him a word. It's a showdown. Elijah has the two altars, has two altars set up, prepared to offer sacrifices, and then says to the prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, and the 400 prophets of Asherah as well, he says to them, and all the people looking on, verse 24, you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he's God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. They said, all right, this is, this is getting good this is getting good you build an altar and offer a sacrifice to Baal all build an altar and offer a sacrifice to the real God and whichever God answers by fire I'm talking about like fire like then we'll know I mean what would you say if you were there I'm like yeah sweet let's see what happens This is what happens. Verse 36, or rather 38, 39, still in chapter 18. They do the whole thing. It's an amazing story. For sake of time, it says uh, the prophets of Baal, they attempt, they have a go. It doesn't work out. Like nothing happens. Elijah flat out mocks them to their face. It's hilarious. And then it says <laughs> Elijah calls out, then. F- the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench around the altar of Elijah's sacrifice. And when the, all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Let's clap. We can clap for that. That's awesome. Come on, baby. Now to be sure, this is one of those moments where I would say, this is what theologians talk about descriptive versus prescriptive. Okay, this is not a prescriptive moment, meaning I would not go out and like challenge the atheist on the corner. Like, let's see whose God is real and like build an altar, be like, all right, Yahweh. Like, don't, you know, you could, man, if you got the boldness, I'll, I'll be right there behind you. Like, go on, let's see what happens. This is not necessarily a, a prescription, like do this and God will do that. It's a description of this unreal moment that happened at a crucial, crucial time in the history of God's people. And it was amazing. I don't know if it will ever happen again quite like that. Now, back to Elijah, or back to Jezebel, rather. Oh, hold on. First, Elijah tells Ahab. So that happens, and he has all the prophets, of Baal and Asherah, executed. It's 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 crazy. It's a bloodbath. And then Elijah tells Ahab to find shelter because the drought is about to break. So Elijah prays seven times, and there was a great rain. So the three year drought is finally broken. Jezebel. It says in 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 1 to 4 Ahab told his wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow one of them meaning one of her own prophets then Elijah was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, we're talking Southern Kingdom, and left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, "It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life." For I'm no better than my fathers. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. What happened? I mean, epic victory for the Lord. Just overcame all of these um, violent, demonic, child-sacrificing priests of Baal. You would think... That he's like, dude, let's, let's, let's keep going. Let's take on the world. God is on our side and yet when Jezebel Jezebel gets word of what has just happened she says, you tell Elijah that I'm going to get him. That what he did to my prophets is nothing compared to what I'm going to do to him. You tell him that. She says the word And Elijah is overcome with fear, this uh, overwhelming desire to run, to hide. He ends up isolating himself and he just wants to die. He thinks to himself, I'm no better than my fathers who have gone before me. Who am I kidding? What's the point? I tried. And Jezebel just won't stop. He literally asked God to take his life. Suicide, ideation, he's just overcome with hopelessness. You know what? One of the things I love about the Old Testament, like the first two-thirds of our Bible, is that it's filled with these epic stories that powerfully illustrate history, yes, but Spiritual reality. There's something else going on here that God's people in Thyatira need to be aware of. This is, this is what we call spiritual warfare. I want to read this. Oh, there's the, a broom tree, by the way. If you're wondering, what the heck's a broom tree? That's a broom tree. I love this. Um, Towards the end of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What do you think about that? Weird? Reality. Scary? What's that? Reality? Is it a reality beyond reality? You know, we typically talk about like the material physical world as reality. What, what if there's a reality beyond reality? That reality, I would say, that's certainly what the Bible is—not uh, inferring, but pretty much flat-out saying. Think about that. The church in Thyatira, they were doing well. They were—they were enduring. They were loving. They were believing Jesus. They were—I mean—they were really like taking their stand as faithful witnesses of Jesus in the midst of an empire, the Roman empire that was violently against Jesus and his followers. And they were taking their stand. This is Elijah and Jezebel all over again. This is, I mean, it looks like I I didn't, I didn't, I've never lived in the first century Roman empire, but I'm told it was a, Bit of a mess. I mean you talk about like religious persecution. You talk about people suffering for the sake of their faith. And the church in Thyatira took their stand. They rose up like Elijah and said, You know what? No more. No more. Let's let's decide once and for all who the real God is. And he wins a great victory. Yahweh comes through, he's not embarrassed. Fire comes down. And then this this figure, this person, this uh, spirit, if you will, referred to as Jezebel, strikes back. Now, let me just make a quick little point here. I've had conversations with, with people, I'm talking about women in the church, who have been accused of having a spirit of Jezebel rubbish this idea that somehow because jezebel was personified in a woman means that this is like something to do with like like women that's i don't see that anywhere now it just so happens that yes jezebel was a woman which to me if anything just says that the enemy of our soul is intimidated by women the strength that God has given women, the dignity, the value, the equality, the, the image bearer, the fact that women are strong. And that Jesus chose a, God chose a woman to give birth to the son of God. I could go on and on. I, just, I want to emphasize the point that this isn't something to be used against women in the church. That's, that's, that's BS. Excuse me. All right, I'm just saying. Look, I'm not trying to go to like one one extreme to another. I'm just trying to say I've been in the church long enough to hear things said about women and somehow using this against women, and it's just utter BS. It's not it's not biblical, so it needs to be emphasized. Okay, I've met if you want to talk about the quote unquote spirit of Jezebel, you know that the, the, sed, the seduction, the sorcery, the manipulation. I've met a lot of guys who do all that just as well as any girl I've ever met, all right? So, there you go. Spiritual warfare. The church in Thyatira, they were taking their stand and they were experiencing this ancient spiritual force pushing back. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever decided, you know, I'm gonna take a big old step for King Jesus? I'm gonna I'm gonna make I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna make some changes. I'm gonna trust him in ways I've never done before. I'm gonna, i I am going to repent with how I've been misusing the body that God has given me to exploit sexuality or to use my sexuality in a way that doesn't actually honor God, but just simply gratifies my own personal, private, individual desires. Because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit given to me to glorify my maker. And so maybe like me, when I was 24 years old and Jesus just got a hold of me, you know, the very first act of repentance, so I repented in my heart, but then the actual, like, outworking of that, you know what that looked like? Some of you are going to think this is crazy. I went straight to my girlfriend's house and I broke up with her. Because I just knew. Like We were, we were sleeping together. We'd been living together. She'd fortunately just moved out because that could have been a bit complicated. And, and, uh, and I, I told her, I said, you know what? I, I love you. You're amazing. This is, I'm not trying to be mean. But I made a decision to follow Jesus. And I'm no theologian. But I think there's something in the book about sex is for marriage. So I'm breaking up with you. Sorry. And I did that. Amen. (laughs) That was my wife. (laughs) You know, going back, going back in time, I was thinking about this. That same, I don't know, month that I first became a Christian. Um, I was living in this real uh, nasty little building, downtown Long Beach. Um, it was all I could afford. Finally got my own little studio apartment. Um, and I hadn't even I hadn't graduated from university yet. I'm living in this, there was, I mean, drug dealers and, and, and people who smoked crack. And um, I used to play chess with big old Samoan dude down the hall. And he would beat me every time unless he started having um, super sad but he would have flashbacks and that was super disturbing and 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 really tragic and so i had just among all of these really interesting people and we were all kind of living in poverty and um there was a a prostitute who lived about three doors down the hall on the other side of the hall down from my little studio apartment and she had a little girl who lived i knew she was a prostitute it was pretty obvious men coming and going all, all the time and but she had a little girl like five or six-year-old little girl who was living with her, her name was Gloria. This was like 20-something years ago. Gloria would constantly come down the hall and knock on my door. Really sweet little girl. Um, but like, was all, every time I was home, I'd get a knock on the door. Usually I'd let her come in, I'd leave the door open, I'd let her play around, do whatever. I remember one day, she come, Gloria comes down the hall, knocks on the door, and I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, I remember this so vividly. And I think to myself, Ugh, like I'm trying to have a little quiet time. This, this girl is so sweet and annoying. And <laughs> so I open the door. I'm like, hey, Gloria, how's it going? She's like, can I come in and play? And I'm like, hey, you can come in. But tell you what, I'm reading my Bible right now. If you'd like, you can sit with me and I will read you a story out of the Bible. Would you like that? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I promise I'll, I'll be good. So I pull a little chair up up next to my chair and I flip it open one of the gospels. To this day I have no idea what I was reading but something to do with Jesus and I'm reading to this little girl and I'm kind of watching her, seeing it. She was very, very still. Usually she was super fidgety and she's listening, listening. She's like unusually quiet and I pause and I look over and I can see she's just wide eyed. She's looking around. She looks at me and I say, Gloria, are you Okay. Never forget this. She said, Simon, the devil's really mad right now. And I said, Yep. (laughs) I think you're right. I think you're right. Didn't make a big deal out of it. I just kept reading about Jesus. That was one of the very first times I had a, a revelation. We're living in a world surrounded by a world that's more real than we often think of as reality. As a Christian, the day I said, Jesus, I'd love to follow you. I'd love to experience this life that you've created me for, that you've saved me for, and I don't even know what that means yet, but I want it, I've always wanted it, and I made the decision to, to repent and start following Jesus and figuring that out. That was the day I signed up to join the battle. That was the day I got a new king and a new enemy, the enemy of my soul. And this is why I think this is so significant for us, family. Many of us tolerate a spirit such as Jezebel because we're not even aware of the fact that we have signed up for a fight. Some of us have never experienced the fight because we're actually not even in the fight. And we're pretty just content to sit in our, our chair and, you know, hope to be entertained on a Sunday morning. I don't mean to be harsh. But the reality is, some of you, you don't, you don't know what I'm talking about because you've not really taken a stand. You perhaps have never even truly repented. You've never decided, like, you know what? Jesus is king. I am going to make some radical changes and I don't care what society says or thinks about it. I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to entrust my whole being, my life, my future, my money, my sexuality, my, my, my emotional health, my everything, my eternity to Jesus because he's the only one that came and died for me and conquered death so that I can experience new life now and for eternity to come. And you've never actually done that. You've thought about it. You've said words about it. But your life doesn't actually reflect it. And so I would invite you to, to respond accordingly. Join the family. Join the fight. We've got a couple minutes left. How do we fight back? How do we refuse to tolerate Jezebel, how do we take our stand against spiritual forces of evil? How do we participate in Jesus' victory over Satan? Have you noticed yet, as we've been reading through the letters, that it would seem although Jesus has conquered Satan through his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, it would seem that like Jesus keeps saying to the church, like conquer, conquer, conquer. So I have conquered, but there is still a fight to be fought. I have overcome sin and death, but I'm coming back to finish what I've started. In the meantime, I'm inviting you to participate in my victory. Roll up your sleeves. It's time to get in the fight. And not just for your own spiritual well-being, but for this world that I love, that I've come to die for. There is a battle raging. There are kingdoms colliding, and I want you to get in the fight. What does that look like? How How do we do this? How do we do this spiritual warfare stuff? I've got five things for you. And then we're gonna gonna take communion. Number one, number one. This is where it starts. Humility. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. If you're not starving to death for more, if you're not aware of the fact that you're dead apart from Jesus's life, then you, you've not even taken the first step. It begins by admitting I'm in a fight, and I am not going to win it because I am super awesome. Jesus is super awesome, and we need to embrace that reality. Some of you think, no, I'm good. I'm good. I don't even know what you're on about. Dude. I've got a nice car. I've got a nice job. Got, what's, what's the problem? You're weird. I got nothing for you if you're not willing to admit and embrace the fact that actually you are in a fight and it's to the death, it's for eternity, and apart from Jesus, you have nothing. You are dead now in your sin and will remain so for eternity apart from receiving Jesus' gift of salvation, his grace, however you want to put it, then, then you got nothing. It starts with acknowledging the fact that I, I need Jesus. I'm starving to death for his Life, his grace. Number two, Elijah's lying under the broom tree. He wants to die. He's hopeless. He's just riddled with self loathing. And an angel comes and visits him an angel of the Lord, brings him a cake and some water, and says, Arise and eat. Super practical. Little cupcake. Chocolate cupcake and some water. And it says, Arise and eat. Two times. Exact same thing happens. Arise I imagine the first time, it's almost like when I'm coming to Jesus. Like I really don't do anything to experience forgiveness salvation, new life. I, I, I just kind of like, it's all I can do to just sort of like open my mouth. I just receive it. It's, I mean, I really, I can't say I did anything other than just like, thank you, God, I was, I was dead on the ground. And he sleeps some more. And then the angel returns and does the exact same thing and says for the second time, arise and eat. And I see that as this picture of like, okay, now you've experienced New life in Jesus. He's given you sustenance. He's preserved your life. He's given you new life. Now he's coming to you a second time. And he says, look, it, it's time to get up now. It's time to, to continue on. And he, he, the, the angel of the Lord gives Elijah another cake and water. And he says, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. We've got some place to go now. It's great that you're saved. It's great that you're not dead under the broom tree. But I need you to rise. I need you to go someplace Because we have got a fight to fight. Arise and eat. What, is, what does that mean? Arise and eat. Gosh, I wish, wish we had more time. My very first sermon I ever preached was on arise and eat. Let me just say this, guys. We, Jesus said, when he was fighting the devil in the desert, he quoted Deuteronomy 8, and he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Bible is God's word. When we read it, the Holy Spirit, our teacher, opens our hearts and illumines the word so that we can actually hear God's voice to us. How do we eat? Read your Bible. I know it sounds like mind-numbingly basic and cliche. Guys, it's just read your Bible. Read your Bible every day. I, used to, I had that pounded into my brain for like the, the first 10 years of my, my Christian journey. And eventually I got to the point where I'm like, oh, that's so lame. Like you know, I don't want to read my Bible. It's so religious. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Have you ever thought that? Sure. Get over it. Get over it. Read your Bible daily. It's God's Word, it's how He nourishes us for the journey. Number three, listen. Elijah does arise, he does eat, and he goes, he says, on that cake and water, on that one little cupcake and glass of water, he travels for 40 days across the desert, obvious allusion to Jesus in the desert, and he goes to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb, otherwise known as Mount Sinai, is where Moses received the commandments, the word from God. That's where Elijah goes, and he hides out in a cave there. It's it's, It's a really good, there's a whole nother sermon series, all right? I can't get into it, but it's in that cave that Elijah, the prophet, the man who's experienced the spectacular of God, now learns to hear the still, small voice of his father. The still, small voice, the whisper of God. You hear it? You hear it? Okay, you're listening. Family, we must learn to listen to God. We must learn to still ourselves. Put the screens face down, far away. I know this sounds like so low. Let's, let's harass the millennials. <laughs> I'm with you guys. I'm not a millennial. Turn the screens off. Still yourself. Listen. Jesus said that my sheep will hear my voice. You know, one of the most like, fundamental truths of being a follower of Jesus is that you'll hear his voice. You hear his voice. When we read the scriptures, we're not just reading, oh, these are interesting ancient documents. This is God's word, and I can close the Bible and then just sit and meditate on God's word, and the Holy Spirit will begin to bring to remembrance things that God has said in a deeply personal, timely manner. If I learn to listen, and God will help us to do that. Number four, two more, we must go. After we've eaten, after we've listened, we we've gotta go. We gotta do something. We gotta get out of here. Elijah goes on to anoint three people. Elisha, which is the prophet who will be his, uh, what, predecessor, is that the right word? protege, successor, that's the word I was looking for, um, Jehu, who ends up being the one to finally take out Jezebel, and some other guy who's the king of Syria, that's the evil empire who will end up eventually destroying Samaria. So pff, a lot goes on, but he says, look at Elisha, you've got to get out of the cave. You've got to go. Like, we've got a whole lot to do. I've nourished you. I've spoken to you. And now, Go. How do you fight? Not just by sitting and soaking. It starts there, but you got to go. You got to get in the fight. You've got to begin to be a conduit of God's Spirit. And that's how we overcome, not just waiting to get strong, but by charging the front line, positioning ourselves to need God's grace like never before. You want to learn how to fight? Then fight. You wanna learn how to overcome? Then get on the front line. Open your mouth, do something. Use the gifts that God has given you. Pray as if you were praying for the future generations of your family. Pray for your grandchildren. Pray for your great-grandchildren. Fight for that spouse you've been hoping to meet for way too long now. Pray like that job is a matter between being homeless or not. Pray for the homeless person like their life actually matters as much as yours fight go do something get in the action and see how God moves see how he empowers you to overcome amen, amen. and then finally finally tell you what tell you what we're we're way out of time i'm going to save number 5 for ecclesia so if you like, oh, i need point 5 i don't know i'm i'm going to i'm going to lose the fight if i don't have point number 5 sorry Well, you can get a Bible and figure it out for yourself, or you can go to Ecclesia this week and it will be part of the discussion. Can we stand together, please? You're now listening to Grace City, Portland.